Good evening, Scott. Good afternoon, buddy. How are you doing? I am um, magnificent. You're magnificent. Okay. <laughs> wow. Threw you off, I didn't wish, it? I wish I could say that about myself. Magnificent. <laughs> Almost want to say that with a British accent. That's right. It's quite like that. It's magnificent. Magnifical. All right. We are talking about the Trinity. This is part two. I don't know how many parts it's going to be. So hopefully you're enjoying it and you don't care if you're listening. That's you don't right. care how many parts it's going to be. If I get these things posted. if Eventually it will happen, <laughs> you know, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be like Christmas come early for the people who are listening. It's That's just right. all like, of it's oh, going to be thrown in their direction. Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. I don't just, know what to choose. I'm not good at this thing. But anyways, what are we talking about? Trinity. We're, we're talking about the Trinity. So this study is divided into three sections. Inspired scripture spirit-led reason, and then obstinate objections. Ooh, that's me. And so, yeah, that's, that's Scott, <laughs> um, our resident devil's advocate. There you we mean. need somebody like that. That's though, right. You know, did you make a lot of mistakes? Yeah. You know, you're right. I do. I'm a fallible individual. Um, that's why I try to read scripture as much as possible. That's Cause right. I'll never get it wrong if I just read it, but inspired scripture. We talked about the first point, which is there's only one true God. Mm -hmm. That one is not really debated among people who believe the Bible. There's right. one true God, right? I mean, that's monotheism. It's what scripture yep. teaches clearly in the Old and New Testaments. And so we talked about that, but we kind of touched on the idea that when it talks about God being one in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it doesn't mean one in an absolute singularity sense. It means one in terms of unity and how that allows for the plurality of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are other things we could look at in the Old Testament. We could talk about Genesis 126. I think we even touched on that last time, mm -hmm. how it refers to us. Let us make man in our image. There's only one image. It's the image of God. But yet us is plural. And then you have the name of God, Elohim, which is plural. And yet whenever Elohim does something, the verb is singular in Hebrew. So we talked about that a bit. And we talked about how Jesus in the New Testament, something a little more controversial, um, Jesus' deity how that is foundational to the Christian faith. You can't claim to be Christian if you deny the deity of Jesus. You're not a Christian in your belief system if you deny the deity of Christ. Uh, you can be a cult, you can be another religion, but you can't be Christian. We talked about how he's worthy of worship, and we looked at multiple references which clearly teach that Jesus ought to be worshipped. Not only is it acceptable for us to worship him, but we are commanded to worship him as we worship the Father, which is very important to note because though... As we try to understand the Trinity, we may struggle to comprehend the concept. And we have creeds that help us come up with terms and statements that, you know, sort of set boundaries. Like, we're not going to go past that, but we still all kind of throw our hands up and say, what exactly are we saying here? Like, this is confusing. This is a mystery. Um, we know what is heresy, like to deny the deity of Christ is heresy, yet exactly how he's God and man together, exactly how Father, Son, Holy Spirit coexist as three persons and, you know, the, the singular Godhead, divine right. essence, like all that stuff. It's really confusing. Okay. Right. And I think all Christians will admit that. But one thing that we can speak of practically that we can be certain of is that Jesus ought to be worshiped. Yes. And that necessarily leads us to the conclusion behind that fact that Jesus is God. If he's not God, he's not worthy of worship. Right. And that's what the Old Testament and New Testament both teach, that only God is worthy of that, that reverence. And so Jesus deserves that. Jesus, therefore, must be God. But let's look at some more references in the New Testament, which talk about Jesus being God's equal. These are really good references. Uh, I feel like they 
in some ways are more powerful because maybe maybe they're not quite as attacked. I know there are a lot of people who will attack these verses. Some people are very meticulous in trying to dismantle the deity of Christ as it's taught in the New Testament. But whenever we talk about the deity of Christ, a lot of people want to go to verses that clearly say he is God, like right. Jesus is God. And there mm -hmm. are a number of them, and we're going to look at those. Sure. Those, on the other hand, I think a lot of skeptics, they know that that is such a key battleground because it's the clearest, just a statement which says Jesus is God. And so they'll go to those. And if you run into somebody like that, then you may want to try another approach. One which doesn't maybe say flat out Jesus is God, mm. but says that without yeah. saying it, if you know what I'm trying to say. Right. And so we're going to look at those references where it clearly says Jesus is God. Um, but it's ironic that you would think that would convince people, but there are Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses that would say, oh, well, God, there's a God. It doesn't yeah. have the definite article. Um, and then they might say, oh, well, no, it says Jesus is God. Like Unitarians will say it means God. But God is here like, you know, in a, in a functional sense. It's not an absolute sense. It's not a philosophical sense. He's just God in the sense that he's a he's a prince. He's a power. Um, he's a ruler. And so they, they try to downplay all of those references. So. Mm. Um, maybe instead of just pointing out the word God is used to refer to Jesus, there are other statements that they expand upon that more deeply. And they actually state clearly that Jesus doesn't just have the title, but he has the equality right. with the father. Cause that's, that's a really important point to make, uh, whenever you're discussing these things. So anyways, in John five eighteen, this is mm. a reference that I touched on last time we talked, but we're going to read it. Um, John 5, 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, this is John writing this and explaining why the Jews hated him so much. It's ironic that a lot of people say, oh, well, this is just the Jews interpretation yeah, of the yeah, events, yeah. right? But this would, be a, <laughs> this would be a really good spot for John to clear it up and say, yeah, that's what they thought, but they were wrong. He really wasn't saying that, guys. I don't want you to get me wrong here, okay? Right. But if anybody with honesty would read the Gospel of John, they would come across with the distinct impression that John is saying Jesus is, is God. God. Yeah. He claimed to be God. He did what God does he is God. You need to believe this. Yes. And so when Unitarians, it's, it's interesting when Unitarians come up with all their ways out, you know, their yeah, gymnastics. Yeah. I think that if someone just steps back and looks at it, broad stroke, it's pretty clear that no matter how nitpicky they can be about the language and you know, yeah, all this yeah. stuff. What is the plain sense? Right. Like if really what you're saying is true, that Jesus isn't God and the Bible in no way suggests that Jesus is really God. Why is it that anybody who would sit down and read John would reach that conclusion naturally? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's really confusing. And God's yeah. not a God of confusion. So why would he make it so confusing if it's so clear that the new Testament denies his deity? Mm. It seems to really be teaching his deity. Yes. So it's like, okay, can God not write a book that makes sense and is clear? 
Mm. So to me, that's why we should always err on the side of the plain sense. I don't think we're erring at all here because out of all doctrines, this is the clearest one in my mind. Right. Um, I, my, my faith is firmly rooted in the deity of Christ. Um, I think it's absolutely plain. Christian denominations across the board agree on this. Uh, but when it comes to the plain sense, we certainly have that on our side. But it says Jesus made himself equal with God by claiming that God was his father. This is not like me saying God's my father. Because when I say God's my father, I'm not saying I'm equal with, equal with God. Right. I'm saying that I'm adopted into the family. Jesus is the real deal. I'm patterned after him. Right. I'm the reflection. He's the radiance. There is a distinction there. He's the eternal son. I was made son. Jesus always was the son. Mm. So again, we'll talk more about this idea of Jesus's eternal sonship. But right now we can simply state that when he said this, everybody knew that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. Absolutely. Okay. So we can say that much now in John six forty six, just staying in the same book, John six forty six, it says, not that any man hath seen the father save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Now, Jesus is saying, no man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Jesus is clearly referring to himself here. It's saying he's seen the Father. Now, this was a very important belief among the Jews at the time, that seeing God, like really seeing God and knowing God, in the fullest sense of the term was something that finite created beings are not capable of doing. Mm. We can know God personally, but we can't know God in all of his divine majesty. We never will no. uh, because he's infinite and we're not. So for Jesus to be able to say like, I've seen God, I came from heaven. I was there. I saw God. Now, even the angels are not able to penetrate the unapproachable glory that surrounds the throne. Right. Paul talks about this in first Timothy. So for Jesus to be able to say like, I've, I've pierced through that majesty and I've seen God's face, the full brunt of his glory and power. I've, I've taken it all in. I, right. I, I wrap my mind around it. I know what I understand it. I know him. Yeah. Like I, that. That's who I am. That's who I am. That's blasphemy. Yes. If you're not actually equal right. with God, because you're claiming that. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is powerful statement. It may not have, you know, any reference to Jesus being God, like that term applied to him, but he's saying like, I've seen God. I know God. I comprehend God. There's nothing you can tell me about God that I don't already know. I am perfectly qualified to reveal God right. to people because I'm not just a created angel or a human who has some comprehension of God, some piece of him. Like I know all of him. Yeah, right. That there's, you can't honestly get a bigger statement than that. Um, in John 10 30, he more or less says the same thing here. Uh, this pertains specifically to his power. He's promising eternal security to those who believe in his name. And that's where things get really personal for me. When I talk about this, if Jesus isn't God, how, how do I know that I'm eternally saved? Like, how do mm. I know I have eternal life? How can a created being give me eternal life? I mean, Right. Practically speaking, like, you why can. would I trust Jesus to give it to me? How can he really give it if he's not eternal? Right. That's like saying, you know, a person who's finite can carry this infinite weight. Okay. Just to use a physical analogy. Sure. You can't do it. Right. Uh, so Jesus giving me eternal life in and of itself um, proves that he is God. But it says here in John 10, uh, 29, 
My father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Okay? But in verse number 28, he says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Mm -hmm. hand. So verse 28, my hand. Verse 29, father's hand. Oh, wait a second, Jesus. You're already putting yourself on the same level as the father here. But in verse 30, he kind of tells us why he's on the same level. I and the father are one. Right. And then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. (laughs) Uh, Jesus is saying, I'm one with the father. He's not saying he is the father. There is a distinction, obviously, between the father and the son. And we throw the Holy Spirit in there, too. There is a distinction in the persons of the Godhead. But clearly, they are one in essence, that the same power that the father has. Jesus is not saying that I have a lesser power. He's saying the same power the father has. I've got that same power. Now, what kind of power does the father have? All power. Like he has all power. He's omnipotent. So when Jesus says, I have that same power, he's claiming to be omnipotent. And so that deserves an explanation. Well, the explanation is I and my father are one. We're of one essence. I'm just like him. And again, this goes back to the terms father and son. We could touch on that just a minute. Um, I don't understand exactly how this works, but the Bible does seem to teach that because the father is God and Jesus is God's son, he is God himself. It's like this. My father's human. Yes. I am my father's son. So, so I am human. But the difference, this is where the analogy breaks down somewhat is because Jesus is eternal and the father's eternal. This relationship of father and son doesn't imply a beginning for Jesus. So this is where we have the terms eternal generation introduced. An eternal generation basically says this. Okay, there are lots of books on it. I think that sometimes um, they act like they know what they're talking about, but they really don't. Mm. In fact, one guy wrote a whole book on this subject of the Trinity, and uh, I think it's Gordon Clark, and I read one of his lines. <laughs> he says, yeah, there's some sense in which, yeah, Jesus is begotten of the Father, and because he's begotten of the Father, he has all that the Father has. You know, mm. he's, he's son. Because he's son of God, he is God himself. He has the divine essence. But he says, no one really knows what that means. <laughs> and I love that. I was just like, okay, all okay, right. No sure. one really, he's like, no one really knows how this works is what he means. He's saying Jesus is actually the son of God, but Jesus is eternal. He's the eternal son of God. So we don't really know how that works. Just like we don't know how the Trinity works. Just like we don't know how an eternal God could take on finite flesh and, you know, and be fully God and fully man at the same time in the same mm-hmm. place. We don't understand all that either. Right. Um, but that's what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line of eternal generation, it's this. The son is God because his father is God. Right. And the father was never without his son. Right. That's what eternal generation is. Now, there are a lot of other ways to express it. But that's biblically what it is. Um, Another way you could express it, which makes it a little more technical, they would say that this generation or begetting of Jesus is not a choice on the father's part to create as it is with us. We're finite beings. But this generation is eternal and it is essential. It's not separate from God. It's within God's being within the Godhead. 
It has no beginning. It has no ending. Just like God, eternal generation simply is. Mm. It just is. So when we think about Jesus being generated or being begotten, a lot of times we can't help but think in terms of time. Well, okay, I was begotten or I was born in 1990. Mm -hmm. So we think, when was Jesus begotten? Well, this begetting is outside of time. It has no beginning. Mm -hmm. It has no ending because the terms beginning and ending apply to time. Mm -hmm. It just is. So Jesus just is the son. And the son in scripture, he states emphatically again and again, I am God. In fact, I am eternal. I've always existed before Abraham was. I am right. The reason that those things apply to me is because God is my father in a unique way. I'm the only begotten. You're mm. not, you're not God's sons or children in the same sense that I am. So Jesus, if he was asked, why are you God? He would say, because God's my father. Mm-hmm. So I, I get everything from the father. The father's eternal. I'm eternal. Father's mm. all powerful. I'm all powerful. Everything that can be said about the father is said about the son. Well, one might respond like Jehovah's Witnesses often do. Well, doesn't that, isn't that illogical, you know, to say that Jesus is eternally begotten? No, it's not. Mm. Um, it's not illogical. Uh, a paradox? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, since we're saying that Jesus is outside of time, our analogy of begetting, which has to do with the beginning, it just doesn't apply to right. God. Um, it would be illogical to say that Jesus is begotten in time, but yet he's eternal. Like that would be a contradiction in terms. You can't do that. Right. Um, but if you say that Jesus as the son is begotten in eternity and this is outside of time. And so he has no beginning. Well, that's impossible for us to understand, but again, it's not illogical. There's no contradiction there. Mm. And we'll talk more about this when we get to the third or second section, actually about, contradiction, logic, as a lot of people say, Trinity is illogical. Um, strictly speaking, it's not illogical, but it is confusing and it's mysterious. And like I've told Scotty, I've talked with her about this a lot recently because, you know, a lot of stuff that I'm teaching here, I talk about with my kids and I'm talking about this with Scotty and she's like, it's really confusing. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, we need is. And then I said something to her. I said, but if you knew everything there was to know about God, would you be excited mm. anymore? I said, is it some of the most exciting parts of life, the mystery learning and, and knowing that you're never going to learn at all. Right. And so this is one of those things that God says about himself that shows us that he's a mystery. He's unknowable. He's, he is unknowable in certain ways. He's not completely detached and unknowable, no, no, no. but I know what you mean. He is unknowable in certain ways. And if he was knowable in every single aspect, then he would be indistinguishable from his right. creation. He'd be limited. He'd be like us. But since he's above and beyond time um, and Jesus as the son of God, you know, his begetting, you know, that's outside of time. These are things that are mysterious to us, but what we can say setting aside all of the different terms and different ways of stating it. Um, we can simply say, like I've already said, the son is God because his father is God and the father was never without his son. So for those of y'all who are listening and you've never heard of eternal generation before, it's probably confusing. I grew up in the Baptist church and I never heard about eternal generation. Never. Um, I 
believe Jesus was God, the Father's God, the Holy Spirit's God, and there's one God and somehow it all works out. And I don't right. know the details. Um, I believe the same way today. Okay, so when I say Jesus is God, I really do mean he's eternal. Jesus did not have a beginning like Jehovah's Witnesses believe. So when we talk about generation, we're not talking about creation. There is a distinction between generation and creation. But a lot of people don't know the historical background of this. You know, in the 300s, whenever they had the big debate about Arianism, um, Arius said Jesus being son means Jesus had a beginning. And that's what they'd say. Jesus had a beginning. They'd say father begetting son implies a beginning for Jesus. And unanimously, okay, um, the consensus of the church against Arius was that, no, that's not what we've been taught. That's not what the Bible teaches. Yes, Jesus is son. He's always been the son. Long before his virgin birth, he was right. son. From eternity past, he was son, but he's always existed. That's right. And he never had a beginning. Right. It's just so, his position. Yes. And so they took both of those things and they put it together. They would say, yes, to sonship. Jesus is eternally son. No doubt about it. Uh, and in some sense, Jesus, when he speaks, even in his word, he says, I, everything that I have, I have from the father. But there was never a time that he was without his father or conversely, his father was without him. And one analogy that they use to describe this, it seems to come from Hebrews 1, and it has to do with radiance and the sun. And they they would say, so the sun, imagine the sun not being a created thing, and it's just always mm. been, okay? Let's say the sun is an analogy for God the Father, and since God the Father has existed forever, let's imagine the sun's existed forever. If the sun has existed forever, can we conceive any time when the sun was not shining? Mm. The answer is no. And the answer is no. It must always be shining. And so if the sun is the radiance, then he has always been with the Father. The sun would not be a sun if it wasn't shining. Right. And radiance would not be radiance unless it came from, from. in some sense, the sun. And so obviously this isn't a perfect analogy either, but it was one that they seemed to think came from Hebrews 1. The terms used there uh, suggest that... That is the analogy. Jesus is the effulgence. He's the radiance. The father's the sun. You can't actually see the sun. If you look up in the sky, right. you don't actually see the sun. You see an image of the sun. Right. But what we see is one with the sun in that it's e like, again, imagine the sun always existing. It's eternally connected to it. I mean, you take away the sun, you take away the radiance. Right. Okay. And you can't imagine the radiance apart from the sun. And so this idea of, you know, being co-eternal was something that the church said, yes, absolutely. This is what we've always been taught. It's not just tradition. It's always been taught because this is what the apostles teach in the word right. of God. Um, and so Jesus is eternal is something else we'll touch on. But I wanted to go ahead and mention that because we talk about father and son. Um, when Jesus is referred to as son of God, that title implies full deity because sons share the essence of their fathers. Mm -hmm. And as long as we don't put this in time and say that the father begot the son to where the son didn't exist prior to that point, mm. as long as we don't say that, cause that's heresy, right? Then it's okay. If we put it outside of time, we can say, yeah, we don't get it. Yeah. It's timeless. It has no beginning, it has no ending. It just is. Yeah. Okay. But that's what scripture teaches. And it's the same thing really with God. A lot of people 
who say, oh, well, logic, logic, logic. Okay. Um, I believe that God is logical. In fact, the title of Christ is Logos. Mm -hmm. Okay. He is logic itself. Um, but let's, let's be honest here. Does any person who believes the Bible, I don't care whether you're a cultist or a Christian or what, anybody who claims to believe the Bible, do you feel comfortable with creation ex nihilo? God mm. creating something out of nothing. Can you understand that? No. I mean, so if you will admit that right. and say, well, it's a paradox, <laughs> you'll, you'll say that's a paradox. Yeah. So why don't you accept the Trinity when it's clearly taught too? You know what I mean? Same, same thing with divine foreknowledge and free will. Right. Are we free to choose? Yes. yes. Does God know what we're going to do before we do it? Yeah. Yes. Is that a paradox? Yes, absolutely. We got yeah. another one. The yeah. Bible's full of them, but it's funny that the people who reject the Trinity, they won't reject all these other paradox, some of them maybe, but they won't reject all of them. Right. So if you're going to be consistent, you simply have to say, look, this is God's word. It's, it's his revelation. It's revelation supernatural from beyond. There are things about it that transcends our intellect. And the only reason we apprehend it is because it was given to us. Mm -hmm. We would not have guessed the Trinity. And in fact, that's one of, in my mind, the unique aspects of Christianity that speaks in favor of it. Mm. I truly believe that Christianity is true in part because it defies human imagination. Absolutely. Uh, lots of religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see where they come up with it. I can see, you know, I'm out in the, the woods and I'm sitting by the river and it sounds so beautiful. And I can yeah. say, that sounds divine. Maybe there's a God maybe, and the yeah. wind, maybe the, maybe there's a God of the wind and these leaves, maybe there's some life giving God in the tree. And I can imagine yeah. animism, I, you know, yeah. being mystical about creation. I can get that. I can understand gods like Zeus and yeah. all that because they're human like. Um, or demonic, but oh yeah. yeah. Oh, obviously, obviously. Right. Yeah. But I can imagine that because they're easy to understand. They kill, they eat, they sleep, they have sex, you know, they, they do yeah. these things that humans do. So I can understand where that would come yes. from. Obviously humans pattern that after themselves. I get that. Yeah. But when you get to Christianity and you get to the hypostatic union of Jesus, God and man together fully at the same time, one person, but two natures in one, it's like, Whoa, where'd that come from? Yeah, That's what about bizarre. The third though. What's that? Third nature. What do you mean? Uh, the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not talking about the Trinity. I'm talking about like Jesus. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Like he, being fully God and fully man at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, in the Trinity too, like that's what we're talking about. So right. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together one, don't get it. And no one in the New Testament tries to explain it. No. And in fact, they even, in certain verses, refer to Jesus in terms of mystery in Colossians, the mystery yeah. um, in first Timothy three sixteen, we'll talk about that. It says, mm. this is the mystery of godliness. Right. God was manifest in the flesh. It's like, okay, so when we talk about God becoming man and have a hard time understanding that. What does the new Testament teach us? It's a mystery. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you don't get it, that's okay. It is a mystery. The mystery of Christ is that the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the deity dwells in him bodily. Paul calls that a mystery. Mm. So these are mysterious things that we should say, okay, we don't have to get it. That when it talks about foreknowledge um, and God's plan from eternity past, it uses the term mystery to apply to that too. Right. And so, yeah, it is a mystery how God can know everything, have a plan down to every detail, but yet us still be free to make choices. I don't get that. It's a mystery right. to me. It's, uh, I'm thinking about Paul when Paul was with Jesus for however long, maybe two years, right? Um, where, wherever he went yes. after he was saved. Um you can, I can, you can imagine him asking these questions. 
Yeah. Right. Ab- yes, absolutely. Like, oh, what do you mean? What do you What do you mean? You're one. You're God. You're one with God. Like, okay, explain this to me. I'd ask those because, questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I would as well. It's like, and you know, Paul did because that's that was his nature because he was the fair Pharisee. What is it? The Pharisees of Pharisee. Right? Yeah. Right. He was. He was the Bible scholar. He was the guy. Like he knew his stuff. Mm-hmm. So he'd probably go, okay. Explain this to me. Then why? How does this work? But I mean, isn't that something that we see? multiple times in the Bible, people do ask God questions. One of the questions is like, why God are you allowing this to happen? You know, and God, sometimes he gives an explanation, but often, maybe more often than not, he doesn't. He doesn't. He gives you a promise. Right. He tells you what's going to happen. Yeah. But he doesn't tell you why it's all happening, how it's all going to happen. Like, do we know the mystery of how we're going to be changed in the blink of an eye? Like how eternal life, you can't look at it in a microscope. You can't diagram it. No. You know, put it in a textbook and no. talk about its components. So there's a lot of things that we don't understand. But um, when you get to the Bible and you see these things, it, it gives you a, what's the word? I, I'm trying to find something more eloquent than a tingly feeling. But you get this tingly feeling where it's like, I when I hold this book, I feel like I'm looking at something from another world. You know what I mean? Mm, like yes. this, this theology about God, the nature of God, it just seems so other. But yet imminent present changing my life personal uh, but yet there's something about it that just still is like beyond my reach right like i don't get all this stuff and i think that i really wouldn't change it i i think it balances it perfectly i have a god who changes my life on a daily basis i have a father that i can talk to i have a savior who became like me but yet at the same time i can revere him and worship him as unique and is one of a kind. Right. It's, it's like, you know, we have a friend that doesn't like when songs say things like, you know, I have a friend in Jesus or Jesus is a friend of mine, which is a really terrible song. But, um, <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? And, but anyway, so she doesn't like when, when there's, there's songs like that because she doesn't think that Jesus should be called our friend, even though he is, but she reveres him much more holy. Again, that would friend. that would be another in my mind, another paradox that I think God, I think that He kind of chuckles when we struggle with it, yeah. and, I, and I think that it it's it's a sign of piety when you do struggle with these things. But um, with that, I get it. I think that on the one hand, it's like I don't feel comfortable when people talk about Abba meaning Daddy. I don't feel comfortable saying Daddy mm. in my prayers, y'all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. honestly, I, I say Father. What about baby Jesus? Baby Jesus. Definitely don't feel comfortable <laughs> addressing Jesus, baby Jesus. Um, Sweet but, baby Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So I don't feel comfortable. I, I do think that we should approach him with reverence, but at the same time, I mean, one of the things the New Testament brings home so much is Jesus is our brother. Right. He's our kinsman redeemer. And uh, that is what we all long for. We long for a God worthy of worship, but a God who's not so distant and, you know, beyond us that he's, again, detached and we can't, he can't sympathize with us. We have a Mm. high priest who's capable of sympathizing with us. And that didn't happen uh, until Jesus became one of us. He came down to our level. He went past the angelic order and he became a human. He stopped there in terms of the tier of how things yeah, are organized. Yeah. Like he's God, he's the highest God of the universe. He is the one true God. And he came down and he became a man. And so they both go together somehow. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why that question I can only imagine, you know, yeah. what will I do yeah. on that what day? Will I do? Yeah. What will I do? And I, I kind of combine them a little bit like these ideas of God being transcendent, but yet personal. I can imagine 
that I'm going to bow down before him. Mm. I feel like if John did it, if he dropped down to his knees, if every other person that sees God in the Bible dropped to their knees first exactly. thing, I think that's going to happen. Yeah. But I think Jesus is going to do the same thing that he did with John and uh, with other people. I think that he's going to come up and put his hand on my shoulder. Yeah. And he's going to touch me on the shoulder and he's going to say, do not fear. Mm. And he's going to claim me as mine. Like I, I'm, I'm his. He's yeah. going to say, you're mine. Yeah. Um, and so that is in my mind, you know, the beauty of the gospel. They Amen. both go together. Yeah. But uh, some other references uh, we can look at, and we'll go through these pretty quick. Um, Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, all things are delivered unto me of my father and no man knoweth the son, but the father. Okay. That's pretty impressive there. Yep. I mean, it's like, no man knows me, but the father, no, but God, it's like, not my mom. Right. Not my stepdad, not my brothers and sisters. Right. No man knoweth the son, but the father, neither knoweth any man, the father save the son. You don't know God. I know God. Right. And it's like, you can't know the father if you don't know me. So he's like tying the father and the son together to where it's an exclusive access thing. Like I yeah. exclusively have access to the father. However, if you know me, this is where it comes to the end of the verse here. He to whomsoever the son will reveal him. So, you know, access to the father comes through the son. The son reveals the father to us. Mm. You know, he reveals himself Yep. and he includes us in this personal relationship, the family of the Godhead. That's the beauty. We'll never be part of the family like father, son, Holy spirit, because again, they're infinite God. But as much as finite beings can, we are brought into the family and adopted. So while we may not be infinite beings mm. like God, and we never will be infinite beings, we'll never be gods, <coughs> Mormons, we'll never be gods. But we are still brought into the family and we're patterned so, after the sun. Sorry, that just, I was going to bring it up in the last thing we were talking about, but in yeah. the last verse, rather. Um, but where he, he references... Didn't I tell you that um, you, what's he say? Oh, yeah, you you're, are gods. you're taking us there, Scott. Okay. You're taking... I, I, but <laughs> I'm um, taking us there because um, it confused, like, I thought I understood this. I've said you are God, son of the most high, all of you. But, and I thought I understood what that meant, but why did Jesus bring it up? Yeah. Okay. Well, Jesus in, in that context is being challenged by the Bible scholars, sure. people, people know their Bibles. Well, and that goes back to the Psalms. I think it's like Psalm 82. It's Psalm 82. Yeah. Psalm 82. And uh, in that context, it's either referring to angels or referring to human rulers. There are a lot of people that argue in favor of the angel view. Uh, Michael Heiser, who's with the Lord now, he argued that, um, but I'm not convinced of it. I think that the way Jesus is using it, at least in John 10, he's talking about human rulers, specifically Jewish human rulers, uh, they were, you know, called Elohim on occasion because yeah. they represented God. But Jesus is saying that if you mere humans to whom the word of God has come, like you've received the word, you're on the receiving end. If you human beings, as low as you are, if you can be called with justice, gods, as we have it in the Old Testament on occasion, how much more do I have the right to be called the son of God in the unique sense, obviously mm. seeing as I was sent from heaven to you. So he's saying, first off, let's clarify things. I said, I was the son of God. 
Okay. Now, again, Jesus is not denying that he's God in essence, but he's saying that I am the son of my father. Okay. That made him equal with God. Yeah. He has everything the father has, but he's saying with clarity, I am the son of God. Right. And I was sent to you. I was sent into the world. I was sanctified. And so that in and of itself teaches that Jesus was in heaven prior, but he's using what's known by most scholars as a rabbinic argument, um, the how much more argument. I thought about writing a paper on this when I was in college because I noticed this pattern a lot in the Bible just on my own, and mm-hmm. I found out that people had already written extensively on it, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to write that paper. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, um, you know, the how much more part there is saying that, yet yeah, you as a human being are able to be called gods, obviously not in a literal sense, but God does not think it unjust to give you that title, seeing as you represent him. Okay. Mm. If that is biblical, how much more should I, who genuinely have a right to it, okay. Who genuinely am the son of God in that essential way and did come from heaven and did bring the word of God. I am the word of God. Like you're just recipients. Like I'm the, I'm the one who was with the father in the beginning and sent from him. So again, in in that context, Jesus is saying, if anybody has a right to use these terms, I do. He's not denying that they have a right to use the term son of God. We we're called sons of God. Believers are, um, in the old Testament, the magistrates are called Elohim on occasion. It's not that we don't have the title applied to us. It's that Jesus is the true thing, the real thing. Uh, he can truly be called God. Sure. Not functionally, not metaphorically, right. literally. He is. He can really be called the divine, eternal son of God. I can only be seen as a reflection. Like, I, yeah. again, I'm an adopted son. Yes. I, I'm an, a begotten in time son. Jesus is the eternal son. Right. So again, in light of the context, Jesus is saying, well, for the sake of argument, okay, you know, if I did use the term God for myself, technically I didn't, I'm saying I'm the son of God, but let's say I I said I'm God, how much more would I have a right to say that than you? Because I came from heaven and I'm one with the father and you're just people, Yes, you know? So I think really, if you understand the argument properly, it comes across as all the more powerful, but, uh, you know, some people have latched onto that and they've tried to use it to say, oh, well, people misunderstood Jesus here. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, they understood what he was saying. Right. Uh, he was not correcting their understanding necessarily. He was responding to their unbelief. They understood exactly what he was saying. Mm-hmm. He was claiming to be eagle with God and they got that right. I mean, that's what he was claiming. Right. But um, he's saying, I have a right to it. Yeah. He says, if you have a right to be called gods in some sense, then I certainly have a right to be called the son of God. And so anyways, um, another reference in Matthew is Matthew 12, uh, 12, six. I lost my place there for a second. Um, it says, I say unto you that in this place is one greater than even the temple. Mm. Now, when people make statements like that, you know what they're saying. It's like, if I said that, if I was standing in a church and I said, one greater than this church is here yes. today. Like, who do you think you are? 
That's what they were thinking. Who do you think you are? I mean, the temple was seen as sacred, not because of the bricks, not because of the decorations. It was seen as sacred because God's there. So for Jesus to say, I'm more sacred than the temple is by extension saying, I'm more sacred than the God who inhabits it um, in in the sense that I am him, right? Um, That I'm one with him, that I'm above the temple as God is above the temple. Um, No human being would be able to put themselves in that position. Right. Um, verse eight it says the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. So even if you were like listening to Jesus and say, okay, I, I don't get what you're saying there about the temple. Like that kind of sounds a little provocative there. Maybe I just misheard you. Like in the next breath, Jesus says the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. So now he's saying I'm greater than the temple and I'm Lord of the Sabbath day. I mean, People, people sometimes say in John, that's where you have all the clear statements. Well, it's all throughout the New Testament, not right. just in John. Uh, Philippians 2, 6. This is one that's really key. It's a battleground. This is one that um, has been written on so much that, um, you know, I almost just have to step back and say, okay, what is what is God saying to me in his word? Because there's just been no end of papers being written on this subject. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. I got to get there too. My eyes are having a hard time focusing. Um, Philippians 2, verse 6. We'll start actually in verse 5. It says, let this mind be in you, this mindset, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, when we talk about those direct statements of Jesus being called God, this is in my mind listed up there. It says Jesus was in the form of God. Now, some people would say, oh, form of God doesn't mean God. Well, it does, because in verse seven, it says he took on the form of a servant. Was Jesus really a servant? Yes. Yes. So form of a servant means he was a servant. So form of God means he was God. I don't see how you can get around that. Um, It means that he had a divine nature. Okay, Uh, a nature which made him, in essence, fully God, just as much as he had a servant nature, a human nature. But in verse six, it says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Jesus, in his mind, he did not consider sitting on the right hand of the father's throne and exercising authority and power of the universe as God. He did not see that as robbery. Right. So standing as God's equal in relation to the creatures the created things that he himself made, Jesus didn't think that that was wrong. And that's because he had a divine nature. That's who he is. Exactly. So he didn't feel like taking on all of the glory of God was robbery. It would be robbery for any human being. The glory of God only belongs to those, to the one Jesus who has a divine nature. The father has that nature. The son has that nature. Uh, The Holy spirit has that nature and it, and they're one. It's just one divine essence. You can't divide it up like got three natures there. It's just one divine nature. But Jesus, he partakes in it. He shares in it. And so Jesus is equal with God. That's a clear statement. Just like in John 5, 18, Jesus is equal with God. Um, Another statement to this effect in Revelation 26. This is one that for years just kind of eluded me. You know, I studied Revelation, read this verse many times, but just didn't see how it played into this debate about Jesus' deity. Uh, But in Revelation 26, it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be 
priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, the way John states that in English as well as in Greek is people who are living in the millennium and later on in the new heaven and the new earth, believers who are there, yep. they will be priests. They will have access to the one true God and they will worship this one true God. Now, what did priests do? Priests worship God and they officiate worship of God. You are not a priest of a human being. Right. You're not a priest of an angel. Right. You're only a, in like the biblical sense. I'm not talking about other religions. Like in, in a biblical sense, you are not a priest of anything other than the one true God. So when it says that they shall be priests of God, referring to the father mm-hmm. and of Christ, it's saying that we're going to be priests of Christ. So it's interesting that Christ in some places, it, it brings forward his humanity, how he became a man to intercede for us, to be our mediator. He is our high priest. Okay. He's right. a, he is a priest, right? He's the high priest he, that puts him on our side. He's human. He's a kinsman redeemer. But in this verse, it's putting him on the other side. Mm. It's putting him on the side of the deity to be worshiped, the deity to be served. There's equality between God, the father and Christ and, and the Messiah. Yeah. yeah. And so what's amazing is many people miss this, but it, it's clear that priest refers to one who worships God mm-hmm. and Christ here is not actually referred to as a priest, right? He's referred to as the deity that the priests serve. So again, it's just another place in scripture, which uh, brings across the equality of the father and the son. And we'll talk more about the Holy spirit. That's going to be something separate. Now uh, let's look at, I don't know what time it is. What time is it, Scott? Ooh, I don't know. It's uh, 10 after nine, 12 after nine. How long have we been going? Ooh, uh, let's see. I mean, I don't want four minutes, 44 minutes. Yeah. I think we should stop there. Yeah. Okay. I think it's a good place to stop too. I just wanted to make sure we didn't cut it off too soon. Hopefully, um, y'all enjoyed that. We'll continue our study next time. Uh, we're going into Jesus's title of God. So we're going to look at a number of verses. I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 verses in the New Testament. And well, there's one or two there in the Old Testament, but 14 verses that clearly call Jesus God. God. Like the awesome. word, the word God or Adonai Lord is used. Mm-hmm. So anyways, we'll look at that next time. Cool. Say goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs>